Hey, this is Tim from Kalamunda Church of Christ, and today I hope that this podcast blesses you. If you are wanting to know anything more about our beautiful church, why don't you hop online and head to our website at kalamunda.church. Father, I thank you for your reckless heart that absolutely overwhelms us, invites us, hunts us down, and has not finished doing that. I thank you that you still are reckless. You still are chasing. You still are inviting us and still hunting us down. Father, my prayer today is that you would find willing and open hearts to receive that hunt, that chase, that invitation. We ask in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Good morning. God bless you. Thanks, guys. Awesome job. My name is Rodney. Somebody's Bible's here. Brian, is that you? Somebody. Thanks. It's not that I don't want the Bible. It's just I've got another one. Thank you, Brad. Fantastic. Uh, frequently asked questions. All right. Now, I'm conscious that there's somebody out there who's asked two questions that we're going to be addressing today. And there's a bunch of you out there who haven't asked those questions. Well, what does it mean for you? My prayer today is that you would lean in because... You know, God is actually quite bigger than a question. He is the God of answers. And so whatever your question, God is the answer. All right? So just listen and be sensitive today to what he's saying to you, not necessarily just to the person who wrote the question. Are you okay with that? Um, I, I, I got two questions. Um, I don't know why Brad just wanted to batch them up. His first question that he asked me was something about um, why Fremantle Dockers can't win a premiership. And I said, that's way too hard. Um, I've been trying for a while. So he we went for a couple of easier questions. But both of the questions are to do with identity. All right. So um, now I'm going to read a little bit today, which is kind of not my normal style. It's just that some of the stuff's a little bit sensitive. All right. So if you see me reading, um, I'm just choosing my words fairly carefully because there's some issues to do with identity that really sometimes go to the heart of us as individuals. And also some of them are a little bit sensitive in the media. You don't have to open up social media to understand that. So I want us today to not put our thinking caps on in how we respond to these questions, but to put our caring hearts on. All right, just, just think pastorally about your own circumstances and about the people that are asking these questions and the issues to do with humanity that sit behind them. Are you okay with that? All right, here's the first. I'm not going to tell you the second question yet. All right, you have to wait for that. That's part B. Um, this is the first question. You ready to go, guys? Thanks, Ben, down the back. All right, here's the first question. Is God male or female? Hooey! All right. Well, there's four possible answers. He's male, female, he's neither, or both. That's good. It's one of them. C. <laughs> Always choose C. That looks like a, a straightforward question. Let's just ask ourselves for a minute, indulge ourselves, and ask why might somebody have asked this question? So perhaps... A person is feeling alienated from God, who they perceive as male, because of a bad experience they might have had with, a, with an earthly father or a father figure. Perhaps a person has a fear that a view that God is female or feminine may somehow undermine their understanding of the scriptures or their personal faith. Maybe they've watched The Shack or read the book and thought, oh, oh boy, what does it mean if God is female? Does that, does that change the whole of 
my understanding of faith. Regardless of who asked, there's certainly some value in all of us just leaning in today. All right. Where's a good place to start? Somebody help me out here. Where's a good place to start? At the beginning. All right, let's go to the beginning. All right, so in the very beginning, God created. Okay, let's have a look at verse uh, 26, 27. All right, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that he may rule over all the fish of the sea and all the birds in the sky and their livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So, And Jesus actually reinstated this, uh, reminded us of this in, in the Gospels. He created us male and female. Now, let's just stop for a minute, because we have a tendency, like what Brian was saying, we have a tendency to make God in our image. All right? We want to understand God with our frame of reference, in our understanding. God made us in his image. All right, so we need to understand that we are often at fault because we want to force God into a framework that we understand. We understand maleness, we understand femaleness, and therefore we want to force God somehow into that. But let's not force the almighty, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the all-present God into our frame of reference. You okay with that? That's, I'm getting a bit heavy with you here, so you just uh, think about that. We, we want to make God in our image, but it doesn't say that. Now, those of you that know your Bible know that frequently God is referred to in masculine kind of forms. We know that Jesus taught us to pray our Father. We know that even on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But there's also references in Scripture that characterizes God in terms that we might normally associate with, says he, choosing his words very carefully, associate with femininity or, or femaleness. Nurturing, caring. There's lots of passages in the Bible that, we, uh, that sort of ascribe to God characteristics that we might normally refer to as masculine, perhaps warrior-like or strength it's gone quiet in here. Somebody just say, I'm still alive. So, right, okay. All right, I'm not saying all women are such and such and all men. Did you notice I chose my words very carefully? Just, all right, just help me out here. I'm used to being in a Pentecostal church where people yell out stuff or throw stuff if they don't like you, okay? So, all right. Let me give you some examples. Isaiah chapter 66, we're not going to look at it. It's not on the big screen. Just trust me, I'll read it out. Um, and it says, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. And you will be comforted over Jerusalem. So they see that, that kind of sense of feminine caring as a mother comforts her children. But then the next verse says this, The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. Verse 16, with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment. So we've flipped super fast from a kind of this feminine kind of approach to a, a kind of a warrior kind of approach. It's all over the shop. Oh, I could be an angry man. Let's not go there right now. So are we any closer then to answering the question, is God male or female? So uh, um, Brad said we're allowed to do this. I'm going to give a bit of a personal opinion, I guess, has uh, how I see it. Am I speaking too fast? No? All right. Let me have some water. All right. Let's get it. to get through. We've got two questions. Here we go. So... The God of the universe wants to make himself known to us. He, he revealed himself to us, as Brahma was saying, in the Old Testament through prophets and kings. 
And at that particular time, in that particular culture, the expression of communication at that stage was principally through males. And culturally, in my view, it was appropriate that the expression of God's humanity happened to fit the cultural expression of that time. More recently, Jesus has made himself known in the form of his son. Clearly, male. God somehow forced himself. This is a whole bunch of theology. There's PhDs on this. How God forced himself into a man. Let's do the whole lesson on that today. Why, but why a man and not a woman? Well, I'm not exactly sure. There's some suggestion perhaps that because he was going to be the faultless lamb that died to take away the sin of the world and that that lamb would be the firstborn male, maybe that was why he was male. There's a lot of different reasons. But to be honest with you, I'm not sure. But I do know that culturally it was appropriate that Jesus would be male because he was going to be able to do the things that he did, move to the places that he went to uh, and express himself in the way he did in that particular culture at that time of day by being male. But I don't believe that any of these scriptures or things that I've talked about make it clear that God is male. Only that he is portrayed predominantly as male to relate to a predominant culture of the day. I think there's a much, much bigger issue at play. And if you're going to come with me for a little journey, I want to take you to one of my very favorite passages in the Bible, and that's where Jesus meets the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. Now, if ever Jesus was going to break any taboos, he was going to do things wrong. He did them wrong on that day. He spoke to an outcast woman from a, an outcast tribe at an outcast place. Everything was wrong, 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 wrong. And Jesus did it, and he did it with attitude. And he did it to express what the heart of the Father was like. And he actually revealed some stuff to that lady at that time that he hadn't revealed to anybody else that we read about in the Scriptures before that. It was remarkable what happened. Now, you can go and read the whole story yourself. It's in the Bible. It's in, where is it? It's in John 4. Okay, I think it's in another gospel as well, but definitely in John 4. And um, we're not going to go through the whole passage, but in that interaction where the woman is arguing with Jesus and Jesus is responding and starting to show something of his real nature, it comes to this particular part here. We got it there, Ben? Thanks, mate. Um, and um, Jesus says this to the woman. Oh, actually, sorry, before you put that up, mate, let me just read something else. Um, the, this interaction, the woman says, Sir, I see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know and we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews then he goes on to say this yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the father in the spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks God is spirit and those who whoops I better read it as it says and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth Rod what are you saying what's this got to do with maleness and femaleness True worshippers won't see God as male or as female. He is spirit. Spirit transcends male and it transcends female and it transcends any other gender assignment that somebody may wish to choose. It's not, though, just about gender identity. Do you notice some things in here? Before it was you Samaritans and you Jews. 
Now, God is spirit. So God is able to relate to anybody regardless of whatever culture, whatever background, whatever religion, whatever ethnicity, whatever is your heritage and culture and experience. doesn't matter. God is spirit. He's not in any boxes of that sort of religion anymore. I'm excited about that. But there's more. Are you ready for more? It used to be that God would only be worshipped in that place or in that place. But now he is spirit. So he's everywhere. So I don't care whether you're from Iceland or Australia or Benin or Indonesia. God's there. And he's here. So he's out of the box that we want to put him in. Are you ready? There's more. The good news is that whatever your gender, whatever your location, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your social standing, whatever your marital or relationship status or lack thereof, your language, your family history, Jesus invites you. You. Male or female? It's a good question, but it's a smaller question in a bigger picture of understanding that we relate to God as spirit, not putting him in a box that we are in. Jesus invites you to recognize him and the Father as spirit and to worship him accordingly. So focus on this bigger issue. Regardless of your skin color, your background, your heritage, there's an invitation for you, an invitation for me. And I'm so glad about that. God is spirit and the Father is seeking those who will worship him. The question is, will we? Will we? All right. Now, I want you to stand up. I know, I know we don't do that normally in the middle of a message. You're thinking, oh, hang on a minute, that wasn't on the run sheet, whatever. Just stand up. All right. So my short answer to that question is no. God is not male and God is not female. God is spirit. And we can loosen the box. All right. Okay, now. Um, that's the end of question one. That was a slightly shorter question. I'm not going to sit down yet. But you can turn around and shake somebody on the hand and say, that wasn't too hard after all. Okay. Now you can sit down because the next one's a cracker. I just wanted to soften you up with that one. Yeah. Can I can I leave now? Can I? This is, <laughs> this is such a good question. As I mentioned, both of these questions relate to our identity. But actually, what I'm trying to do is t- take it from our identity and focus on God's identity, because our hope is that we become more and more like Him, and that we become made in Christ's image, and that that's reflective, um, like Jess said, uh, of that. We reflect his goodness and his greatness. All right, we're ready for this question. Thanks, Ben. Let's put it up there. I'm going to give you a chance to read it. It's all right, I'm not leaving. How do you rebuke sin and still love someone? Okay, let's do it. If in rebuking their sin, you're also rebuking part of their identity, e.g. homosexuality. So we're not going to talk about homosexuality for the whole, for the whole time. That's an example of someone's identity or how they see their identity. Obviously, we're meant to love everyone, but the church seems to be causing more hurt than love. I actually think the person who wrote this question, I'm taking a guess, has really got a heart for the lost. And we can tell that by what's in those brackets there, in those parentheses at the end. I don't believe that this person is trying to cause trouble in the church. I think they actually... 
they want the church to align with what God's interested in. And I'm really excited, and I'm so glad that Brett asked me to respond to this question. So I thank the person. I, I, I thank the person for asking the question. I really do. All right, you ready? To, you're holding on. I said that we'd be a bit tougher on this one. Luke Winter uh, gave a great message a couple of weeks ago. Brad, yours was last week. It was okay too. But <laughs> They reckon a good message is one that goes over your head and hits the person behind you. Uh, I kind of like the idea of that. Luke said a one-liner in there that really leapt out with me. You might not have heard it, but let me read it to you. As, as I remember, I wrote it down at the time. We always want the other person to be the Pharisee. And I heard that and I went, gulp. Well, something got hot in here, I tell you. Um, we always want that. If, if you're not sure what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee was a teacher of the law or a kind of a lawyer at the time that Jesus walked on the earth physically. And um, they were responsible for, for protecting and honing some religious traditions, much, much more than the law of Moses, but some religious traditions. Um, and they became the gatekeepers of who, in their view, was in with God and who was not. Who was right and who, who, and who was not? Who, who were friends with God and who could not be friends with God? And that caused them to have some interactions with Jesus that were not particularly pleasant. Because they didn't like the fact that Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. That's pretty cool. Well, they didn't like that at all. So the Pharisees were protecting a set of laws. Now... I just need to have a drink of water before I say this because it's not very nice. <laughs> the water's fine. I have a fair dose of Pharisee in me. I, often that gets expressed with me thinking things. I don't know that I'd say them out loud. She, she probably hears them sometimes. But um, I've been a Christian for X number of years, therefore I deserve. Or I went to Bible school, therefore I but probably more concerting is these sort of attitudes that come out. They did that, therefore they. Or they are with that, therefore they. And when I feel that bubbling up within me, I recognize that's a bit of Pharisee. And that's when Luke says those sort of things, our Luke here. I, I feel uncomfortable. Because I want to measure people by my standard. But... Like Brian says, our standard is rubbish. It really is. You probably thought you were getting a good bloke today. I'm a sinner. I'm saved by grace. My identity is in Christ, but I'm a sinner. And so I cannot measure somebody else's sin by my standard. It is way, way out of whack. We recall Romans 3.23 that says, three people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Yes? That was the new version. I think it said all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Is that right? Somebody, you're with me here? Yeah. I know it's not you. I know it's the other person. We, everyone, we always want the other person to be the Pharisee. We want to be the nice guy. But it doesn't always happen that way. Let's get back to the question. It's a good question. It's a question provides an example of someone who identifies as homosexual. Uh, now, I'm just going to just read a little bit more carefully at this point, if you don't mind. As part of their identity... Okay, so I'm not saying that they necessarily just practice homosexuality, but that they are homosexual and that, that is part of who they are. Now, personally, I take a different view. I try to take a different view. And while that person may see themselves, their identity as homosexual, 
I try to take the view that that person has a different identity, someone who is fearfully and wonderfully made and is deeply loved by God. Now, so please hear me. I'm not expressing in any way trying to devalue or ignore how they see themselves. I'm just saying that I try to see them differently in their identity. You, you guys okay with me on that? It's, it's a, a little bit tricky. But, um, now, I don't think that this issue of identity is, linked, is, is limited alone to sexuality or sexual identity because I think there's a lot of our identities that somehow are intrinsically linked uh, sometimes with our, with our sin. And so perhaps somebody's sense of resourcefulness or their brokenness or their independence, all these things can be part of our identity. So how then should we respond when in our opinion what someone is doing or has done is wrong, but that that thing in itself is somehow tied up with who they are or how they see themselves? That's how I, I interpret this question. It's a cracker of a question. All right. So because there's no value in me, measuring somebody's sin by my standard, or you, I think we need to go to Jesus and find out how he responded. You okay with that? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you two stories. Um, most of you will know these stories, so I'm going to cut really quick to the end of the story, okay? Now, I'll give you the Bible verses, so if you want to go away and read them yourself, um, I encourage you to do so, but we just don't have time to read the whole of the accounts. But if you've been around this church for a little while, you will have heard reference to these um, uh, stories or accounts in the past. One's a story and one is an account. All right? One actually happened and one was Jesus telling a parable, a story. You ready to come on these two journeys? What, what, what have we got? We've got a bit of time. We've time to finish here or we've got a bit more time? Another three minutes I heard from the front there. That's great. All right, let's go. Okay, let's see what we've got. Uh, first one is from John chapter 8. And it is what we often refer to as... The woman caught in adultery. Now, frankly, does my head in. If she was caught in the very act of adultery, but they only found one person, I don't know how that happened. Um, some, so suggest to me that it was a setup uh, and that the Pharisees were doing this deliberately, but let's go to the story. And if we can go to there, thanks, buddy, you're awesome. At dawn, Jesus appeared again at the temple courts where all of the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, let's put them together. Teachers, of, on, on, This is going to be the teachers of the law and the Pharisee side over here. Sorry, guys, all right? Over here is the sinners and the tax collectors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are what we call the squishy middle, all right? You're not too sure. You're just working it out, okay? Uh, so um, Jesus had gathered the, 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 the sinners and the tax collectors. They wanted to hear what he was saying. He loved them. And he ate with them. And here's the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. All right. Oh, I forgot to read. Yeah. They brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made a stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded that you commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now, I love that last little bit that John puts in there just to explain it to us that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Okay. All right. Here's the play. Teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they... The rule keepers, who's in, who's out, God's friend, God's not friend, not, who's not friends with God. Legally, they had the right to stone the woman. Okay, you understand? Heckling from the side. All right. The woman. You guys get to be the woman. What's the situation? What, what is her identity right now? What is her identity? It is full of fear. It is full of 
concern. It is full of frailty. It is full of vulnerability. It is full of embarrassment. It is full of guilt. And then there's Jesus. We've just been singing about him, the one that leaves the 99 to find the one. The one who came to seek and save the lost. The one who did not come to condemn the world, but through him to save the world. Jesus stoops down and he writes in the sand while the Pharisees demand that he responds whether it was right for them to stone the woman. And then Jesus lifts his head and he utters to the Pharisees and the teachers of law those immortal words that we know forever. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. I'll put it, that's right. I forgot the Pharisees had it. I was going to have it for a minute there. And then we have what I think is the most amazing noise in history. Thump. 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 As stone after stone fell to the ground as convicted men were brought into a different standard, not their own standard, but the standard against Jesus was setting one of righteousness and goodness and truth. And all of a sudden, they realized they were the guilty ones. And in their guilt from the oldest to the youngest, they shuffled away. And while that's going on, Jesus stoops back down again and starts writing in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. And then once they've all gone, he pops his head up again. And he, this time he addresses the woman. And he asks her this simple question, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. Then neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. Just imagine it was you. I just want to just draw a few notes out here. Jesus positioned himself between the accuser and the accused. All right, now that's a little picture of what's happening in the big picture. Jesus has always been positioning himself between the accuser and the accused. You know, there is an accuser of your soul. And Jesus positioned himself. He came to die to separate you from that accusation of sin and the power of that accusation. I'm so glad about that. I'm so glad about that. He doesn't position himself against the sinner. He positions himself against the accuser. He came to save the sinner. He saw the woman differently to how she saw herself. Right. Identity. The woman's identity, we assume, was right at that stage, was surrounded by issues of fear, of guilt, of embarrassment, of humiliation. Jesus had a different view of her identity. He saw her loved. He saw her saved. He saw her worth, his investment of his time, of him positioning himself in front of a whole bunch of angry men to save her from her sin and pull her away from the clause of that sin. I'm glad about that. How are we going for time? We've got time for one more story. Are you getting the drift so far? That I'm not talking about homosexuality. I'm not actually talking about sin. I'm talking about our response. Our response to the individual and trying to look at how Jesus responded to individuals who were just caught out. All right, let's just take a break here. Okay, number two. 
Oh, he sang a song about this too. Um, in Luke chapter 15, not this Luke, the other Luke, the, uh, the, the older Luke. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories. But the context of those three stories is very much like what was just happening with the woman called an adultery um, narrative. Because there was a crowd again. Jesus attracted the crowd. And once again, there were the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Everybody go, ooh, ooh, yeah. Uh, and, and then there were sinners and the tax collectors. Everybody go, ooh. And then there was the squishy middle. And they all had gathered around. Uh, this is a super cool story because it's the sort of thing that we hear in, in kids' church all the time. And we hear the story of the, the lost son or the story of the prodigal son. And it's kind of portrayed, particularly when we're young, um, about the, the boy who comes to his senses and, and comes back again. And, and why, the, why the, the Pharisees and Sadducees had any investment in the story. See, this is a very, very clever story by Jesus. Because he tells one story to two audiences. And it's a bit like watching, um, you know, Finding Nemo or one of those really clever Pixar movies where there's something in it for the kids, but the adults are really they're getting a different message and it's very, very clever. Well, this is just like this, but better, because Jesus is a much better storyteller than, than Lassiter. Um, and, uh, and, and Jesus tells this story. We better get onto it, otherwise we're going to run out of time. What have we got? Where are we up to? Oh, three stories. First story was the parable of the lost sheep. Lost sheep. Who the 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 the, um, the the end point of the story is that heaven will go and leave the ninety nine safe ones to find the one that is lost. That's the nature of heaven, Jesus is saying. So remember, a parable was not just about the story, but the reason for telling the story was to show something of the nature of the kingdom. Then he goes on to the parable of the lost coin, the, the nature of which, the, the essence of which the story was that heaven rejoices over when one is found. That was lost. And then he comes to this same story told in a different way about the prodigal son or the lost son. Put your hand up if you've never heard the story. All right, good. So we're going to cut to the chase here. Father, two sons, old son, goody two-shoes, never seems to do anything wrong, works all the time. Younger son, everybody, everybody in their family has got like that, that, that member, you know. Well, in this particular family, that was that member, okay? The, the younger son, he was willful. Don't point to your brother. That's not right. Um, he, he, he was willful. He was, uh, you know, kind of, he wanted his own way. He wanted his father dead so he can get the inheritance. He took the inheritance early, went to a foreign country, spent it all on riotous living, eventually ended up with nothing, came to his senses, and then came home. He left as a son, albeit a little bit wayward. He came back with the intention that he had a new identity, and that new identity was as a servant or as a almost a slave, but as a servant in his household. Do you notice his identity changed? His identity was associated with his sin and the responses of his sin. All right. What have we got here? Ah, of course, he returns home. His father runs to meet him and restore him to sonship. But the older brother, however, despised the father in his heart uh, because the father so welcomed the son despite his sin and even had thrown a party. Shishi and I often joke that the only two people who didn't rejoice at the return of the son were the older brother and the fatted calf. <laughs> He's been sitting there all that time getting fat just for one purpose. <laughs> There's always one in the family. And then the older brother had a few things to say. We're not going to go into now. You can read yourself in Luke 15. But he basically said a whole bunch of things about how bad the younger son had been, what he had done wrong, and listed out his sins. And all of the things that he listed seemed to be about right. 
It seemed to be correct what he was saying. And he seemed to be indicating that the son did not warrant, did not deserve what was being lavished upon him by the father. So he was technically, technically correct and he was lawfully able to rebuke the sin that walked in the door with that now servant. Where have the worship team guys come? Thanks so much. He was legally enabled to rebuke the sin that was associated with that servant. But here's the kicker. The older son's heart didn't beat to the same rhythm as the father's heart did. Remember what I said before about Jesus positioning himself between the accuser and the accused? He did it again. Between the religious. He positioned himself between the older brother who followed all the rules but didn't have any joy at the return of the younger son. Of course, Jesus was targeting in telling the older son's story. He was targeting the Pharisees and the Sadducees who would never leave the 99. Who would never rejoice over the one but who set boundaries so that those could never enter into the kingdom. We go to the uh, last slide, Ben, with the question again. Thanks, buddy. I've just taken the first part of that question now. How do you rebuke sin and still love someone if in rebuking their sin you're also rebuking part of their identity? It's a great question. Once again, I thank the person. My response is, my answer is, you take a leaf out of the Father's book. He didn't focus on rebuking the sinner, on protecting what was safe and pure. He looked out for the lost and he responded with extravagant grace or recklessness, as this song says. He didn't agree with the self-identity of the younger son as a servant. Instead, he yelled back at the staff, greeting the son. He yells back at the staff and he says, This is my son. Go and find that ring. You know, the ring with the family crest to say, actually, he's part of our family. He's a son. He's one of us. He didn't agree with the identity of the younger son. I kind of find that so refreshing. And he rejoiced. And the father loved him. He sought him out. He forgave him. He welcomed him. We didn't ask these guys to choose this song on the run sheet. You guys chose it somehow or other. It's just in here. We're about to sing it, I suspect. But he could have rebuked him until no, from noon till dawn. But he chose, he chose, he chose not to. And frankly, if that approach is good enough for the father, it should be good enough for you and me. So I urge you to refrain from looking for ways to rebuke the sin. Rather, look for ways to invite the sinner, to welcome the sinner, to love the sinner. Heck, one day it's going to be you and me standing in need of that forgiveness. So how do we rebuke sin? Well, my challenge to you is that we be much, much more than sin rebukers. That we be much more of, than punishers and fence builders and boundary riders. But instead we open the doors. We follow the Father's heart. We follow the Son's lead. We constantly check our hearts to make sure that we are the ones who leave 
for 99 to find the one, that we are the ones who rejoice over that which was found, that we are the ones who celebrate together. Would you stand with me? I'd like to lead us in prayer. This is a kind of challenging thing because in all of us, there's a Pharisee thing. So I just want to address this issue of uh, if you're feeling like condemned, oh boy, I, 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 just want to, I just want to rebuke sin. We all have that feeling. Okay, it's, it's built into us. Um, and, and we have a responsibility, absolutely, to hold off sin. But we have a greater responsibility to care for the loss. So I just want to pray into that sense of reframing of, of who we are and how we respond. And also, as a church, we are a church that want to see lost people found. We want a church that we want to see people who are outside, inside. Not just the church building, but in the kingdom. So let's pray that we be a heart that, and a place that welcomes people like that. Yeah? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have shown us a pattern of how to respond in such situ- situations. I thank you that your identity is out of spirit and that means that you can reach every person anywhere, anytime, with any background. And I thank you too that that person you love and you have a plan for and a purpose for and a desire to draw them into your presence. Father, I ask that you would forgive us for the times when we pharisaically want to lock that person out or hold back them because of their behavior and because of their history and that you'd give us today a special dose of the Father's love that would seek to embrace them regardless of how they smell, regardless of where they've been, regardless of what they've done, that we understand that we have nothing to lose because we are safe in you and that you'd pour your spirit out on that people and you would help them grow in the knowledge and understanding of you. We ask in your precious name. Everybody say Amen. Thank you so much, Jess. Bless you.